Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 28th, 2023, a few months ago. Uh, did a great show with one of America's most distinguished cultural critics, Margot Jefferson. She's won the Pulitzer Prize for criticism. A remarkable, uh, remarkably uh, articulate, uh, brilliant woman. Um, it was to celebrate the paperback version of her memoir, Constructing a Nervous System. And our conversation was about how culture has shaped her, and I guess in some ways how she shaped culture. She talked to me about Ella Fitzgerald, Josephine Baker, and how her life uh, has been refracted, not just through memoir, but through her understanding and appre appreciation of the culture. Margot, of course, I don't want to age her, but she's uh, certainly uh, of an older generation. Perhaps if there is a younger version of Margot Jefferson, it's my guest today, Aisha Harris. Um, a much younger version. She, uh, many of you will know her from her uh, pop culture happy hour. Uh, she's a cultural critic on NPR and the author of a really interesting new book, uh, Wannabe, Reckonings with the pop, pop Culture That Shapes Me, very much about her experience of 90s culture and onward. Aisha is joining us from Oakland, California, just over the bridge uh, in the Bay Area. Aisha, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the work of uh, Margot Jefferson, but do you like to historicize yourself? I know you write about the history of culture. Do you like to historicize yourself, uh, both in terms of your work and in wannabe, um, in, in a historical sense, in, in terms of where you come uh, in the history of cultural criticism? Uh, I don't know if I've ever thought about myself in that way, um, but I will say that, you know, as someone who covers pop culture, I definitely, one of my entry rate ways into wanting to even become a critic was because I learned so much uh, history and understanding of the way things were in the past through watching movies and TV shows. I would often you know, watch, I was a big fan of older movies, classic movies, TCM uh, was my lifeline as a, a high schooler and, um, and in college. And I would watch things and then I would try and learn about the context in which they were created. And then I, you know, eventually went to reading lots of critics and thinkers like James Baldwin, um, Roger Ebert, Pauline Kael, and kind of understanding where they were within, you know, a point of, of history within film and TV. Um, and I think that it's really kind of important to be able to not just uh, watch things and consume things and read things, but also really understand what they are coming out of, where they are coming from, because art is not created in a vacuum. It is, you know, something that is both reflecting and um, influencing culture. Uh, many of our viewers and listeners will be familiar with uh, Margot Jefferson's uh, book, uh, Negro Land. Uh, it, one of the things that struck me, one of the most memorable things about constructing a nervous system was her her analysis or reflection on how uh, Ella Fitzgerald sweated 
the way in which it was represented in the culture. White women, according to um, Washington, weren't supposed to sweat, whereas, of course, Ella Fitzgerald did sweat. And, of course, there's a a strong uh, racial element there in terms of the culture. In terms of your new book, uh, Aisha, Wannabe, how much of it is rooted in race in the fact that you're an African-American woman? I mean, it's something that has always been a part of my writing and a part of my coverage of pop culture. Um, You know, I have a few essays in there that are really focused on race, including one um, that is kind of about how do we reckon with Black art in our current moment, Um, especially when we have so like such a, a plethora of Black art that's being created in very interesting and dynamic ways that were not always available to Black artists in the past. And so, uh, you know, I, I felt as though it was really important to sort of, as a Black critic who often that is a part of what, how I'm approaching art, I thought it was really important to really understand, you know, what it means to be this way in this, in this moment. And so within that essay specifically, I'm writing about how we have people like Ava DuVernay, Jordan Peele, uh, Barry Jenkins, and we have all of this great, you know, Black creativity happening, but not all of it is going to be necessarily good or even great, and how we should not be afraid to say that. I think to wrestle with Black art um, and to wrestle with it in an honest way is what is important, um, even if we don't always like it. But oftentimes, you know, as a Black critic, there are times where I might review a movie or TV show negatively, and I will have other people, some of them Black, you know, questioning whether or not I am supporting this artist. And, 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 And I think that it's really important that we be not be afraid to critique Black art, because to do so would be to, to be to do a disservice to that art. Aisha, you, you described uh, today's culture as, as representing a, a plethora of black art. And we're all familiar, of course, with the Harlem Renaissance. Is there a renaissance, do you think, in, in black uh, art, in creativity, in music, in movies, um, in writing these days in the 2020s? I don't know if I would call it so much a renaissance. It's just more doors have been opened. Um, You know, Black creators and Black filmmakers and artists have never went away. They've always been here and and creating interesting things. But the opportunities are more plentiful than they were before. You have many more Black filmmakers who are able to make films at higher budgets uh, with more freedom, more creative freedom, and to get them out to, you know, greater audiences and and, uh, more mass audiences than ever before. And part of that comes from, you know, just progress in terms of social equity and social rights. Um, but that also comes with the, the um, advent of streaming. Um, and while streaming definitely has a lot of uh, uh, back, you know, a lot of sort of drawbacks to it in many ways, especially the state of uh, film movie going and, and movie theaters, I do think that part of what's been great about this moment is that because there's so much art out there, um, it's really opened the doors to allow way more different people, not just Black people, but people of color, queer people, queer voices to really step forward um, in ways that they weren't able to before. Do you think of yourself in terms of being a cultural critic um, in ethnic, sexual, gendered terms? Do you think cultural critics should do that or should they 
try to establish a perch above or beyond or perhaps below all that. You mentioned Pauline Kael, a very radical film critic, but she never, and, and some people have been critical of her, of her in this sense, she never really or never seems to me to have, 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 have sort of brought herself into her work. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a time and place to do that. And I think it really depends on whatever work I am critiquing and, and coming at. I think it's impossible to be a critic or be a human in this world and not bring yourself into whatever you are doing. Now, sometimes it's going to be blatant. It's going to be obvious. It's going to be at the forefront um, you know, if I'm reviewing something like Get Out, I am absolutely going to, you know, talk about it from my perspective as a Black woman um, and really put it into the context of other filmmakers that came before Jordan Peele, who explored the same ideas and issues around race and um, the, you know, and, and uh, race and sex and all those things. But I think also, like, there are times where I don't necessarily feel the need to put myself into it. And I would argue that Pauline Kael did put herself into her, um, you know, her essays. It just doesn't, like, we understood how she thought. We understood her taste. Um, and just because she didn't necessarily approach it from a staunchly feminist, and I, I use that loosely because there's many ways to define that, but even just because she wasn't necessarily sort of waving a baton in a way, that doesn't mean that she wasn't in many ways um, really putting herself forward. This is a subjective uh, field <laughs> in many ways, and I think that to pretend as if we aren't actually bringing ourselves into it is just it's not true. That's, it's always the case. Aisha, who, who, who are your Ella Fitzgeralds or Josephine Bakers? Who are the, the cultural figures that most shaped you growing up? Uh, I mean, Judy Garland is one of them. I mentioned her briefly in the book, but um, she was definitely for me an early gateway into my love of musicals and older movies. Um, I, you know, to this day, love to to just put her on both on tv but also i love to listen to her soundtracks um you know, michael jackson was one and i know marco jefferson has written very uh mm. brilliant brilliantly about michael jackson and um obviously he's a very polarizing figure but when i was a kid there was no no nothing bigger uh in my world for a little while was was that uh was him and, and his music and his videos um, and, you know, I, I think for me, as a, as a writer and as a critic, I've already mentioned Roger Ebert, James Baldwin, Bell Hooks, who I mentioned a few times in the book and I quote from a few times, really, really shaped me in many ways as, and as, someone, as a thinker and as someone who wants to always be trying to just expand my horizons and, and really jump outside of my comfort zones when it comes to how I write and talk about film and TV. I wonder if you're the first person, Aisha, to include Roger Ebert and Bell Hooks in the same sentence. <laughs> well, you know, I feel like they they are not that dissimilar. I mean, obviously, there are Bell Hooks deals with a lot of of uh, radical feminism, and and but Roger Ebert was such a huge champion of diverse voices before. Uh, long before it was, you know, common to be so, you know, he was one of the defenders of do the right thing when a lot of other white film critics didn't understand it and were very critical of that film of Spike Lee's movie. So I think, you know, Roger Ebert was someone who really, he, he really understood empathy 
when it came to writing. Um, and I think Bell Hooks was in a very similar mode, just in, <laughs> it may be in very, very different, they had different ways of expressing that. I know that uh, both the, uh, the Spice Girls uh, and Stevie Wonder show up in, in, in the book. Tell me a little bit about your interest in both the Spice Girls and Stevie Wonder. Well, Stevie Wonder plays a huge part in the first chapter of Wannabe, uh, which is all about my journey with my name, Aisha, and how I sort of created this mythology. Unknowingly, it was a mythology around my name that wasn't quite exactly how uh, I understood it. Uh, so my origins, I thought, had come from the song Isn't She Lovely by Stevie Wonder. Um, and his daughter is named Aisha. And in the song, he sings about her and sings her name. And when I was younger, my dad would sing that to me as a kid. Uh, and that album, Songs in the Key of Life, was always playing in our house. Um, and so I thought that that was, <laughs> I thought that that was where I got my name from. But it turns out it wasn't quite uh, the way I thought it thought it happened. But that kind of led me on a journey with writing the book and writing that essay of me trying to figure out, okay, why did I want it, want so badly for this song to be the origin of my name? Um, and it led me down this sort of, you know, rabbit hole around uh, different ways in which Black names are perceived in pop culture and TV, uh, especially people like characters like Shanene <laughs> on uh, the show Martin, and also just uh, how I came to really internalize some negative ideas around my name uh, that I needed to get over. As for the Spice Girls, they were, you know, they came along right at the perfect moment of my life. I was, you know, nine or 10 years old when their first album dropped. And so I was right in their wheelhouse. And there, there was a, you know, the interesting thing about that is that the Spice Girls had one black member. And when I was growing up, I grew up in the suburbs of Connecticut, uh, had predominantly white friends, at least throughout elementary school and into middle school. And, you know, we would play Spice Girls and I would have to be Scary Spice, even though I didn't necessarily want to be Scary Spice just because I was the black friend. Um, and so I had to really, I, I wanted to write about that in one of the other chapters uh, that's all about the black friend in film and TV shows. And I use the Spice Girls sort of as a jumping off point to sort of explore these many other examples of black friends. In right, you, you, wrote, uh, you wrote a really nice um, excerpt from the book on, on Lit Hub, where this show is uh, distributed from servant to cut to sidekick, the black friend then and now. Actually, um, uh, Margot Washington and I just uh, Margot uh, uh, Washington and I discussed this. Uh, Jefferson and I discussed this too. What is the the history of the black friend, and why is it important to you and and to generally in broader cultural terms too? Yeah, so I trace it as far back as Huckleberry Finn, uh, the Mark Twain novel, and the character of Jim, and how he sort of serves as this um, uh, catalyst for Huck Finn's character to be a quote-unquote better person. And so uh, the character of Jim, I think, can also be trickled down into uh, Mammy and Gone with the Wind, the yeah. side, you know, the sidekick, uh, Eddie Rochester Anderson, the sidekick of uh, Jack Benny. And those were usually, you know, servants or in, in the case of Mammy, she was an enslaved person. Um, right. And Mammy I, was the, uh, I can't remember the woman who played her. I talked to Margot about this, but she was the first black woman to win an Oscar. 
Yes, Hattie McDaniel um, for Best Supporting Actress. And uh, but then later on in like the 80s and 90s, you start to see this trope play out in a different way. And instead of them being sort of the obvious servants uh, of white people, they're instead kind of now the friends. Uh, they still kind of act in the same way. They are this, the sidekick. They offer um, advice. They offer a shoulder to cry on. They are, you know, it's, it all still revolves around the white character, but instead of them being it, uh, like ostensibly sub- subservient to the white character, white protagonist, they are just a friend. Um, and I wanted to explore that in part because, you know, it's, it's really interesting to think about how those characters serve uh, each, each white protagonist and how in many ways in my own life, I played the role where I often felt as though I was sort of not the main character in my own story and how I was there to just sort of listen to my white friends talk about their crushes and, you know, the things that were going on with them. And I felt like kind of like an afterthought. Um, And so I wanted to explore how that is plays out in pop culture. And, you know, I even uh, I wind up coming to the conclusion that it still plays out in some ways today uh, in, in popular culture, but there are some more kind of subversive examples, specifically the movie Zola, um, which came out a few years ago and is based off a Twitter thread that went viral. So it's partially based on, on facts or on truth, uh, very, very partially. Um, but it's really interesting because the Black friend in that case is the lead character, the lead character of Zola, who bef- sort of befriends a white woman who takes it to a completely different level. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to sort of dig into what that means and 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 how that plays out throughout um, pop culture. Yeah, you know um, that um, many of these characters are products of, of, of white imagination. What is um, for you, uh, Aisha, what is a white imagination? Well, I think, and and I sort of, when it comes to the white imagination, for so long, obviously, whiteness has been the default in film and TV. And specifically in this context, I saw this, this uh, I see these characters as sort of often coming from this idea of what it means to be in an interracial friendship. And oftentimes that means something different to a white person than it does to a black person. Um, one of the things I reference is kind of the tw- the year of 2020 when we had this so-called racial reckoning in the wake of the George Floyd mor- murders and you had white coworkers and, and friends you know, reaching out to their black friends and, and for the first time perhaps talking about race or at least like gesturing toward race. Um, and, you know, I think that oftentimes white imaginations, when they imagine interracial friendships, it doesn't actually mean talking about race. That's one of the other things I noticed that in so many of these examples in pop culture, they're often, it's like unspoken. There's no sort of sense that there's any sort of difference or a way in which this person moves differently in the world than the other person. Um, and I think that that's one of the limitations of that kind of imagining of black and white friendships because at least now as an adult I still have many white friends and and non-black friends but we can talk about race and we can have conversations about it and those are the people I like to keep in my life because it, it feels it's not something that I can just divorce myself from I'm black and uh, I have different experiences than my non-Black friends do. And I think that's really crucial to having a, a good and healthy interracial friendship. Uh, Aisha, yesterday we had the 
political uh, historian and uh, analyst of America, Wesley Lowry, on the show. Um, he has a new book out, White Lash. We talked about the growing racial tensions between whites and blacks in America today, particularly from within the Republican Party. It seems, and maybe you can make sense of this as a cultural critic, it seems as if two things are going on simultaneously. On the one hand, as you've noted, there's a, maybe it's not a renaissance, but a plethora plethora of black culture of one kind or another. One that comes to mind is the new movie Spider-Man, increasingly uh, mainstream representation of other races, cultures, genders, sexualities. And on the other hand, of course, we have Donald Trump, we have uh, Rick DeSantis, we have an increasingly uh, divided and some people might suggest even dangerous Republican Party. How would you make sense of those two things in parallel? Are they really in parallel or are they bound up with one another? Is the, the, the Trump DeSantis phenomenon a response to the increasing mainstreaming of African-American culture? I mean, I definitely think, you know, and there are plenty of uh, political, you know, analysts who have talked about this and studied this more than I have. But I mean, I don't think you can absolutely ignore the fact that there did seem to be this sort of uh, backlash or as some people, as uh, I think Wesley refers to as white lash uh, in the wake of Obama's presidency. Um, But I I still think that while that's true, these are all kind of things that are always in the ether, right? We, the United States in any country is not a monolith. There's always going to be dueling forces and, and, and various strains of, of thought and behavior and ideas around, especially around race and politics. And so, I mean, I think that it's really, it's such a weird time to be in, to be in this moment where you have all of this, all of this seemingly large group of people who want this country to regress and to go back to the good old days, which were good for only a certain, certain kind of person. Um, and yet at the same time, culture is really trying to push itself forward and is pushing forward in many ways. I do think that popular culture often sort of anticipates in many ways uh, progress and, 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 and sometimes it, it, it reflects it and other times it, it you know, works against it. But I do think that it's just interesting to be in this moment where you do, like you said, we have Spider-Man. You, you we have a Black Little Mermaid. We got um, Wakanda. I mean, Wakanda is obviously the manifestation, right. best manifestation of that. Right. Um, so I think that it's when we look back on this time, it's gonna. It might be a little confusing, but I honestly think that it's also just this is the way that it's often been uh, where, you know, we see this sort of, I don't know, tension uh, between what's happening in politics and what's happening in film and TV. And um, I think maybe the fissure might be a little bit more stark than it was in say the sixties. I think the sixties, yes, we had some radical filmmaking and you had, you know, art film, uh, someone like Sidney Poitier, but even those, his characters are often restrained um, in many ways and was n- were not allowed to be more than one or two dimensional characters. Um, and now we have sort of this similar pushback and yet we have also have 
a lot more different kinds of characters and a lot more daring and radical um, uh, takes on race in film and, and, and TV. Aisha, yesterday we also had Dave uh, David Niwat on the show, uh, uh, a Portland-based journalist who warns about the coming civil war, about these uh, militaristic uh, right-wing movements. Um, and he, he talked about the small town, the, the countryside in America being entirely different from the cities. I wonder for you as a cultural critic, are Americans now, you're active on Twitter, which manifests that fragmented nature of the culture, the echo chamber nature of American or global culture. I wonder if there really are maybe two or more Americas where people are watching, viewing, listening, reading entirely different kinds of material so that they can talk about being American. They might hold the same passport, although most rural Americans don't have passports. And yet they have nothing else in common. In other words, is culture the thing that historically has united Americans is now the thing that divides them? I don't know if it's ever fully united America because, you know. Right. Again, no, again, I take the point. But, you know, the old days, yeah. television networks, blah, blah, blah. Right. But they're, they're definitely, I think there was at least at some point a sense that there was a quote unquote monolithic culture. Um, you know, when you think about the days of, again, Michael Jackson at his peak or Seinfeld. Prince. Prince, Seinfeld, draw like tens of millions of viewers. Um, there definitely was a time when more people were tuned into the same things. And now it's so bifurcated, or not even bifurcated, it's just, it's all diverged in so many ways. When I think about the fact that there are so many influencers and, and people on TikTok who have millions and tens and hundreds of millions of followers, and I've never heard of them, <laughs> um, I think that that is such a common thing now. And uh, I don't think that's necessarily a good or bad thing. I do think that there is something to be said for the fact that, and I write about this in the book and in another essay, that so much of pop culture has become personalized, highly personalized and over-personalized to some extent, where you can just go online and find your various uh, people who agree with you about this artist or are big fans of this franchise. And the plus side is that people are able to connect about their pop culture obsessions uh, in ways that can often be comforting and, and um, really just like fun to, to, to participate in. But then the dark side of that is that there's also people who take it to the extreme and harass other people online for the things that they like or the, for the things that they, you know, talk about online. Um, and so it's become a really interesting way to live where everything has become very, very personal when it comes to pop culture and politics, but, and the, all of that kind of weaves together. Um, but that we turn this sort of into either a religion of some sort or like a sports team where your team Taylor Swift or your team Star Wars. Uh, and it's it's definitely, it, things have shifted, you know? Um, there's not as much general agreement, I think, about what we're watching or what we love than there might've been, um, you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Do you think that shapes writers like yourself in terms of putting books together? The Los Angeles Times liked your book, uh, but they called it... Uh, a, a, a stream of 
consciousness style musing, very different from, say, uh, Margot, uh, Margot, uh, Margot uh, Jefferson's work. Um, do you think that you as a cultural critic, I mean, you're shaping culture, of course, and responding to it, but do you think in a sense you're also a prisoner of it in terms of the form, not just the message, but the medium that you write in? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think, you know, it's, we, I think that my, my biggest sort of hurdle right now as a critic is that there is just so much and there's no way for me to take it all in. And I have to, I've long ago had to kind of accept, accept that, um, there are going to be things that I am late to, or things that maybe I never get to because there's just so much programming. Um, and I think that to me, that's both a good and a bad problem to have, because that, that means that to some extent we do have so many people who are able to create things. Um, but then at the same time, it's, it's, it is hard to sort of figure out like what rises above, like what is worth to me and also more broadly to a greater amount of people, what is worth covering or what is worth really trying to look out for, for versus what doesn't necessarily rise to the top. Um, so I'm definitely kind of in that sort of conundrum. And if you talk to any critic now, they would probably say the same thing because it's just so much. <laughs> well, let's end on some, with some cultural criticism, uh, Aisha. Uh, what makes a really good film? I know you, you really like um, uh, the movie... Uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco. I'm a big admirer of that film, whereas you're not perhaps so much of a fan of King Richard, the movie about uh, the Williams girls and their father. What, what's the difference between those films? What makes one good and one less good? I mean, those are two very different movies. <laughs> um, but, you know, for me, I think what I found really fascinating about The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which I didn't love, but I definitely... Uh, found very, very fascinating. And I think that's a good distinction to make because I don't love everything, but if it's able to hold my interest and, and really make me think, even if I don't love it, I think that's that makes it stand out and makes it a good movie. Um, and I liked that movie in part because it, it was, you know, it was topical and it also, just the performances in it were, were fantastic. Whereas King Richard, I feel as though really falls into a very particular kind of biopic um, that uh, hits a lot of the same notes that we expect it to hit. I also had an issue with the fact, you know, that it really focused on the male figure in these two dynamic women athletes' lives. Um, but, you know, I think when I, whenever I'm looking, thinking about what makes something good, I'm thinking about, did it move me? Was I entertained? Did it make me think? And it doesn't have to have all of that criteria because there are plenty of really silly movies <laughs> that like don't necessarily make me think, but they, they still moved me in some way or they entertained me in some way. And I think that's uh, something I always try to look for when I'm thinking about film or TV or anything I'm consuming. Aisha, finally, a, cu a couple of recommendations for people to watch or listen or read. And don't say Spider-Man 3. My daughter dragged me to that and I fell asleep. Oh, wait, the, the Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse? Really? Uh, yeah, I'm, oh. I'm sure I was wrong about falling asleep. <laughs> well, I will, I will not recommend that. especially. Was so it good? Did you think it was good? 
Oh, I loved it. I loved it. Um, I just didn't get it. I'm just too old and probably too white to get that one. <laughs> I, I, there's plenty of white people who like it too. But um, no, I- It was I, great. I don't have any, any diversity in me at all. I'm a disgrace <laughs> to the human race. Uh, well, if I had to recommend, I'll recommend two really quickly. Um, one is The Blackening, which is a, a horror movie spoof uh, that features an all-Black cast. Uh, and it, it subverts the, the common trope of the first Black, the Black person being the first one to die in this movie. All of them are Black. So the question is, what happens when every Black character in a horror movie is Black? Uh, and then the second one I'll recommend comes out uh, just in a week or two, it's Joyride, which is this really fun, raunchy comedy mm -hmm. about uh, Asian American uh, friends who go on a, a road trip, or not a road trip, go go on a trip to to China, and uh, it's really funny. Really, just it, if you liked Bridesmaids, Girls Trips, uh, Hangover, any of those movies, and I think Seth Rogen also produced it. Um, it's definitely worth checking out.